Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to another episode where we talk about financial therapy and the fact that making good financial decisions is not just about the money, the money equation. And I often uh, talk on this podcast about something that's on my mind, which is usually maybe a, a column that I have recently written. The problem with my columns is that I'm held to 600 words, and it's hard to say a lot in 600 words and especially get into the emotional side and the nuance of making a decision. So recently I wrote a column that opened with uh, the fact that investment success is boring, and this is something that emotionally is really difficult to get a hold of because there's so many parts of us that feel if we're not doing something, then nothing's happening uh, and nothing is happening that we've got to do. We've got to be engaged. And I think this can also satisfy parts of us that have uh, a need for stimulation and, uh, and adrenaline. I work out, oh, not every day at the gym, but every every other day. I do uh, circuit training, which includes a lot of different things. And the trainers there enjoy uh, watching stocks and watching the market. And they're typically asking me, did you see this? Or they'll, they'll say, boy, I bet your phone is ringing off the wall today. I'll be, why? Oh, the market is up or down significantly. And it reminds me of the time in my life when I was in my early 20s, early to mid 20s, when I really felt the same way that Investing was fun. It was really fun to try and pick the, the stock that's going up. I'll spend a lot of time researching it. And then just the adrenaline that's involved in following the stock, uh, even on a daily basis. And should I sell? Should I not sell? Back in the day, I got a lot of uh, enjoyment out of that. Today, it just feels like exhausting to live in that space. And I suppose had I been successful at doing that, maybe being in that space wouldn't be so hard. But ultimately, I wasn't successful. Uh, just kind of an interesting aside, from time to time, I'll have my financial planning clients want to follow a specific stock. This could be when they're they're coming in a, usually in as a, a new client, they'd like to reserve a little bit to, quote, play with. 
but even existing uh, clients will hear about this or hear about that and how this particular stock is probably going to do really, really good or it's in a industry they really support like uh, one of the more recent ones would be uh, alternative fuel. And that came in vogue, I don't know, let's just say maybe five years ago or so. And interestingly enough, even though that is the future of... Uh, of um, <laughs> energy, there's just a period of time, several years, where those stocks just did terribly. And I don't know what they're doing right now because I don't follow them. But I typically give somebody about two years before they have proven to themselves that they can't really do any better picking stocks than just following an index. So it's uh, this emotional need to be active to do something, which is especially predominant when markets are falling, is can be just huge. And of course, that's often the reason that we get out of a market. But we can do the same thing when markets are at the top. It's um, fear of missing out. FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. And that can drive, drive us. So really good investing is really boring and we have to work with that anxiety within ourselves to do nothing because that is not the societal money script that is not what the financial press teaches us the financial press teaches us that you need to stay on top of this you need to be involved you need to pay attention to where the economy is and what you need to do and i suggest that you don't you don't need to be completely uh, disenfranchised from your investments or uh, uh, completely avoiding them. But research does show the less that we look at investments, the better the investments return. And ideally, research says don't look at your investments except once a year. This also requires that you have made some really good decisions in your asset allocation and what you've put your investments in, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean that you want to put all your money into oil and gas futures and walk away and forget about it. So I suppose that's a whole nother uh, podcast. So in, in uh, this particular column, I talked about the problem of listening to gurus and listening to people who predict the future and listening to people who are positive of what is to come. And I have spent a lot of time talking about, writing about instances where uh, my clients were so sure we're falling off the fiscal cliff. We're so sure that uh, raising taxes was going to tank the economy. I mean, you can just fill in the blanks that just were positive. And typically, I would gently challenge the positiveness of absolute knowing and and oftentimes uh, help folks not make drastic moves in their portfolios. And I would say, wow, nine out of 10 times be really rewarded that they didn't take the action that, that they were so convinced would be the right action. So I generally say, you know, don't 
follow the advice of prognosticating financial soothsayers. And one of those was me last year. <laughs> it's a little bit embarrassing, but sometimes I have to say be very careful even of my advice. So what was that all about? Well, in May of 2020, the devastation of the financial pandemic was just in unfolding and real estate activity was just going in the tank. I think it was a March to April, um, house sales had declined 18% and then April to May, they went down another 10% in May. I wrote some advice that suggested if you're looking for a house, probably be best just to wait. Uh, I mean, here the economy is shutting down. Probably house prices are going to fall, I don't know, 5, 10, 25%. This is what happened in 2009. This is really predictable. And uh, you might want to wait. And I really had no second thoughts about that prediction. And it, just a little bit of my background, I became a real estate broker at the age of 19. In 19, I think it was in 19, maybe it was 79 that I became a CCIM, a Certified Commercial Investment Broker, uh, which is the highest designation given in real estate. In fact, I had so much training in real estate, I got three years credit toward my bachelor degree. I've held the highest uh, designation in commercial real estate. I held one of the highest designations in residential real estate. I mean, if you just add it all up, I understand real estate. I could be considered an expert. Well, I am considered an expert. Okay. I did not second guess that bit of advice at all. And setting out a year later, I completely blew it. Anybody who was a first-time home buyer that listened to my bit of advice cost themselves a bundle by not buying. And not buying immediately when things were um, falling apart. And it's not that prices even went down during that time, not even a little bit. They were on the uptrend. And today, not only have prices not fallen 5, 10, 25%, they've gone up 5, 10, 25%. Now, this is an epic miss. This is, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you can't be much more wrong than this. So, you know, it's kind of a little bit of humble pie. And I think it's, I think it's important that people like myself that uh, give advice on financial matters, uh, need to really bring it out when they blow it, right? So I think it's, uh, it, it's noteworthy to say. Now, does that mean well, that what I'm saying is don't follow in my advice? Well, 
not when I'm predicting the real estate prices into the future. You know, I, I have said for years that uh, back when I was really involved in real estate, that I was terrible at predicting interest rates. And I was. I really was terrible at that. So I don't even, I haven't tried to predict real estate or, or interest rates ever, right? But predicting, I mean, something so obvious as we're going into a recession and real estate's going to fall. This did not seem like a, a risky, uh, a risky prediction. One of my associates uh, suggests that I was probably being a little bit hard on myself. And I will, I will admit that not very few people saw this coming. There was an article written by CNBC. I think it was Diana Olick that wrote it. And she wrote that no one could have predicted this. Economists couldn't predict the sharp upward trend in real estate prices. Real estate agents didn't predict it. The home builders didn't predict it. This pandemic and th this run-up in housing was not logical. It was based on emotions. And it was an emotional increase in prices like nothing we've ever seen. So, I mean, I could feel a little bit better about that. But the whole point is I was wrong. That's the point. I was wrong. There's probably thousands of others that were wrong, but I was wrong. And I was wrong for all the right reasons. Okay? It made total logical sense that one could expect the real estate market to decline. And yet, the markets responded to human emotion. And the emotion was uh, uh, probably a lot, tons of fear around this pandemic and the move out of cities into more rural areas. And also not just um, relating to the pandemic, but a lot of political reasons why people left areas politically to go to other areas that would be uh, a, of a different political persuasion. So I think what, what really hit me on this and what really hit me about her statement was markets are emotional. And how often have I said that? Markets are emotional. So, and you know, the logical part of me wants to really reject that as being illogical. You know, it's illogical that our markets are driven so much by emotion. And yet, the fact that emotion does drive all markets is inherently logical. I mean, that's just the truth. So if you can think of it this way, it's the logicality of human emotion that's driving markets, right? That makes the impossibility of accurately predicting future market prices totally logical. So it's completely illogical to try and predict of future prices based on logic, because that's not what drives markets. 
It's human behavior, okay? Which we can't predict. I hope that made sense. So, you know, I just wanted to bring that out. And, and it, it also kind of begs the question is why? why? Why do we want to be able to predict the future? Why is having trust in somebody saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what you need to do. Why, why do we do that? What makes it so difficult for us to do nothing? And I think I've already said what that is. It's anxiety. It is the, uh, the inability or the fear to be able to just reside in not knowing, right? The fear of not knowing. And sometimes that fear becomes so overwhelming in us that we, we search for answers. We search for certitude. We search for something we can really buy into. Why? Because then that reduces all this anxiety that is um, building up within us. So it becomes really important, and this is not only in financial decisions, but tons of decisions, of learning to sit with the anxiety, learning to befriend the anxiety without doing anything to relieve it. In other words, how can I... Um, relieve my anxiety from within rather than from without by doing something. And, and in that doing, it could actually make things worse and make our anxiety worse. I've talked about this before that, again, relating this to markets, right? You're really anxious, really anxious. Let's just take the typical one that the market is falling. And you got, you know, the, the, the anxiety is just running rampant in your system. Let me just sell before I have nothing left. Boom. Call your your financial person. Sell. You're out. Whew. Immediate relief. But part of the problem is that the relief is often short-lived because the markets eventually turn around. It is so rare that a person would go back in. Uh, when markets turn around, because, of course, this is just a little bump. They're going to come back down. That's what we tell ourselves. And now the markets start going up, 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 up. The anxiety starts ramping up, 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 up. Where now, when do I get in? Oh, oh, look at all the money I've lost not getting in. I'm going to wait for it to fall. And the market keeps going up, 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 up. Maybe it falls a little bit, but not enough. And up, 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 up. And the anxiety builds. The anxiety builds pretty soon. We're into FOMO fear of missing out. The anxiety is so great. Look at what I've left. I guess this thing's going to continue. We get back into the market. Oh, relief. Relief from the anxiety. <laughs> the market goes up a little bit. Relief. And then it turns and starts going down. And we go through the whole cycle again. All right. So that's why I say and sometimes Learning to sit with the anxiety is really important. And that doesn't mean 
never doing anything. I mean, this is this is the uh, the wisdom of the serenity prayer of helping me understand the things I can change and the things I can't change and knowing the difference. What's the difference between something I can do and something I can't change that I need to sit with the anxiety around? So, so I think it would be helpful for us to get curious around the anxiety, to get curious with that part of us that's uh, having anxiety and to find out what is it that that anxious part of me really believes? What does it believe about money or markets or whatever is going on? And that usually takes some time and it usually takes uh, some inward focus to really find out what are the money scripts? What are the money scripts underneath my anxiety? Because we know that every behavior, no matter how illogical it seems to you or other people, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs. So next time that you're, you're feeling a lot of anxiety around the decision, before you do something about it, take time to drill down and ask yourself, what's the belief? What is the belief underneath this anxiety? What's driving this? And then when you find those out, do a little research to find out if it's true. Find out. And honestly, if you're, you know, we all have a part of us that's pretty wise. And sometimes you can look at that belief and instantly know, oh, you know, that's a partial truth. And all money scripts are a partial truth. So sometimes within ourselves, we know the answer, right? So, well, that's what I have for today. I hope this has been helpful to you. And I look forward to the next time that we're together. Take care. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.